G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm producer and host, John Murch. Let's head into our feature guest. Mia Dyson. 2018 album was If I Said Only So Far, I Take It Back and in recent years has teamed up with Liz Stringer and Jen Cloer as part of Dyson Stringer Cloer, whose self-titled album was released in 2019 out on Milk Records. Today, they joined us by Skype from the States to talk through the 15th anniversary release of their 2005 album, Parking Lots, which won the ARIA Award for Best Blues and Roots album, and will have a newly recorded EP to go with a limited white vinyl. Mia Dyson, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here with you. Where was Mia Dyson at in 2005 that this album had to be recorded? Oh, well, it was my second record. I was a pretty determined and frightened little musician on the scene in Melbourne. I was... um, I'd partnered up with uh, Lloyd Barrett was my boyfriend and he he had um, recorded and helped co-produce the first record and we were going to make the next one together. But we didn't have the kind of money to just go and, um, you know, record at Sing Sing or record in one of the big studios, which cost, you know, $1,000 a day. So we decided to kind of make our own studio in the bungalow of my grandmother's house in Rooney Ponds and you know we'd bought some gear over the preceding couple of years we borrowed some gear Lloyd set up this makeshift studio in the in the bungalow and you know the big thing about I think at that time you know the expense of being in a studio is that I really needed I really needed some time to to get comfortable in a studio because if you only make a record every two years and I'd only made one it's like it's very limited experience uh, you know, to get like, you don't get much of a chance to get good at it if you're not making records all the time. And as a songwriter, like I can only make a record every couple of years, but so it was really great to have the time to, I think, mess around as much as we did. And we did it sort of very strange in a strange way. Cause we did it like we did a lot of the vocals and guitars first and then added drums and bass Later, we set up another home studio in my bass player's parents' holiday house in Mount Martha, and that's where we put all the drums and bass down. Um, Danny Ferrugia and Lucas Taranto, wonderful Melbourne musicians um, who've gone on to do incredible things. You know, it was it was a, a fraught. I mean, every recording is for me, but it, particularly in the early days, being only my second record, I was I was obsessive and I was like perfectionist and yet I could never actually reach the perfection that that I was looking for. Back then there's also that pressure I think there still is of the second record where possibly the artist puts everything into the first record their entire life experiences and everything what was that second album experience like I guess following on from what you're speaking about there? You know I didn't really have that experience I mean I certainly you know, I luckily didn't have the pressure of having like an incredibly successful debut album that meant that all eyes were on me for the next one. And I actually think uh, my songwriting improved, you know, from the first record. And um, I felt more solid with those 
set that set of songs than I did for the first record. And uh, so, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't feel, it was wonderful, I didn't feel pressure. If anything, it was the third record that felt a little more pressure. Without going too much into the personal details, talk to us, though, about that dynamics of working with the partner at the time in terms of getting your musical vision out. It was wonderful that we, we had this shared vision. I was an aspiring songwriter, musician, and he was an aspiring record producer and, and engineer. And we both had the same shared vision of creating the best work that we could create together. Um, and then the downside, I think, was that we both were obsessive and, and perfectionist and, and really each gave ourselves such a hard time. Not each other, but I think we were you know, we were each hard on ourselves to the point of, you know, kind of not making it fun anymore. You know, I didn't yet know how to enjoy myself in the studio and, and, and actually like allow things to be an experiment rather than like a test. Let's take you back to Mooney Ponds. Your grandma got a letter from the Queen back in October of last year. Yes. Firstly, is she a Libran? And secondly, is she a, a monarchist? She's definitely a monarchist. I have no idea whether she's a Libran. She was October twenty eighth. Is that a is that a Libran? I, I think that's a cusp. Okay, yeah. So so she actually was impressed with the letter from the Queen. She's she's definitely, you know, in got some age related dementia, but she was very cognizant of the letter from the Queen. Very happy about that. <laughs> so take us back to fifteen years ago. How did that proposal of using that particular space back then come about? Well, what happened was my grandfather had died in 2004, so just, you know, just the year before, and the whole family was in agreement that she needed people around and she'd never been, she'd never lived alone in, in, in her life like most people of her generation, hadn't spent a night on her own before. So, so me and my partner Lloyd spent a lot of time at her place. I think we even lived there for a few months and she was very happy to have us you know, she was not precious about the, the bungalow. It, it was my grandfather's pool room. Obviously, there was no longer granddad to play pool, and the pool room moved to my aunt's place down in um, Hyatt. So so we had this space, and she was, you know, luckily because also it was detached from the house, so we didn't bother her with the noise or anything like that. We were, it was a pretty lucky scenario. And then we'd come in and use the kitchen and make snacks and she loved making food and, and stuff like that. So it worked out pretty good. She was a bit, yeah, she was a pretty cool nana. What kind of music was or is she into? Oh, <laughs> not my music. I mean, I don't even, she really didn't listen to music much and if anything, a little bit of classical. I remember her saying something like, um, oh, it's all very noisy. You know, something like that about what I was making. So, yeah, I, I wasn't using her as a test audience, thankfully. My understanding is your granddad, whilst he was alive, actually made things, including that pool table. He did. Oh, it was magnificent. Next to the pool room was a shed that he made into a workshop. And he created all sorts of beautiful things. He made dresses and tables and sideboards and dining tables and stuff but the, the pool table is kind of the piece de resistance because it's I don't know you have to get like the leveling has to be just so perfect for the billiard balls to smoothly run over it and I just love that pool table I mean it's still in existence and still gets used but yeah I mean he was such a, a crafty granddad. Where did music tie into the family relations? 
Well, definitely my parents. I mean, I'd like to think that I would have found my way to music regardless, but who knows? I, I think, you know, my parents had a huge influence, both being music fans and having a really wonderful vinyl record collection that I stole from them since, well, they basically gave up vinyl once CDs came in. But also my dad being a guitar maker and guitar player and playing in bands and me watching him do that and him giving me a few lessons here and there. Obviously, they both had a a huge influence on the fact that I ended up playing music and playing guitar, specifically electric guitar, which is what dad made electric guitars. So that's what I play. Their reaction to this very record we're talking about, Parking Lots, released in 2005, 15th anniversary we're speaking about. What was their reaction to this very record? Not the debut, not other records, but this specific record. I don't know if I... If I know specifically, I mean, I, I think in general they were super proud and, and thrilled, I think, because this record got really widespread airplay and and some acclaim. I think, you know, they were thrilled for me about that. I, I think if I recall, like, my dad being pretty excited about the guitar sounds on this record because, you know, it's, it's like very riff heavy. It's a real guitar-driven album and also there's a couple of lap steel songs which you know he made me the lap steel as well which I started playing I mean I think there's one song on the first record but this one had like three songs on lap steel and a bit of lap steel here and there but like three songs that were actually that was the main instrument accompanying the voice and I think dad was pretty happy about that I'd also like to note someone of possibly his generation, I don't want to age him in any way, but definitely a legend of the time when he was possibly growing up, is that of the guest vocalist on the title track, Parking Lots. Talk to us about the experience of working with Renee Geyer. Oh, wow, yes. Equal parts thrilling and terrifying. She is a formidable person and, you know, I mean, I remember going to see her at Queenscliff Music Festival when I was maybe 15 or something like that. And she just dominates in this amazing way, which is wonderful on stage, like to see a woman just owning it like that. And obviously her voice is just incredible. I've always, I love her voice. But being in the studio and being, you know, idolising her, it's a bit of a different scenario. And, and she certainly didn't want any notes. <laughs> she wanted to do it her way even though, you know, obviously she, we were asking her to, do, to take, like to do the backing vocals, which I know is not, you know, she's, she's a lead singer and, and she deserves to be in, in the front. But, um, you know, it was, it was, it was funny and, and it was great actually because my um, Nick Lorne, who mixed the record, we actually put her vocals on when we were doing the mix and he was great, like because I was sort of a deer in the headlights and, and I think Lloyd had said something that maybe, felt like a bit of a, not a criticism, but some feedback that she just didn't want to hear. And Nick Launay really was like just a really, I mean, he worked with everyone. So he could deal with egos and stuff like that. And he just, he just did a great job of kind of mediating the whole thing. And it was, it was fun. How does that come about? How do you get Renee Geyer doing backing vocals? Is it Nick or was it a different piece of the chemistry pie? It was actually through her manager because I, I, luckily gotten the gig of opening for her like not even that long before that and so we you know we met and she was really sweet to have me on those shows and and she was encouraging and so it was just as simple as approaching her manager and saying hey any chance that you know and I I, I wasn't you know 
half, I was definitely half expecting to get a no, but luckily she said yes. As you said, you were performing live with her. You made that connection, but musically speaking, what did you want from her? I think part of it was to learn from her, you know, to be in a studio with her and see how she works and see what her process is and and to hear how she would approach. And it was actually interesting because she, uh, you know, how she would approach this uh, song, which I, I picked because it's sort of I just felt like it was resonant with her voice and, and, and she, you know, she's like that bluesiness and, um, but she, she was actually, uh, you know, she was, it was totally fine, but she, I think I have a, a bit more of a, a loose style. Like I'm not as, I'm not as technically skilled as she is. And, um, and she kind of gave me a little bit of a like jab about that, you know, like about how, like I do this rundown. She's like, you're supposed to hit all those notes on the way down. Whereas I kind of blurred it and didn't quite hit the notes, you know, but that was something I liked to do. So it was interesting to just get her take on it. What made Parking Lots the deciding factor as the title tune? How did it become the title tune of this record? Gosh. Oh, my gosh. I have no memory. (laughs) I just have no idea actually why that ended up. Maybe it was my favourite song at the time. It's funny, isn't it? I just have... Like, it's not even, I don't even think it's a particularly good title for an album. But I had ideas back then that I they're inscrutable to me now. The characters on this record, because it's not an autobiography kind of record, there are other characters within this record as well. So, right. Mia, can you talk to us about those characters and how they were weaving in and out of your life at the time? Yeah, well, the, yeah, there's a couple of songs that where I tell other people's story and one of the main ones is Roll Me Out, which is kind of a a song that I wrote after spending many occasions performing out at women's prisons, um, well, specifically one at that time. The Dame Phyllis Frost Centre was the name of the prison, which mm. doesn't sound like a prison, does it? No. But they, they used to joke that it was the Dame Syphilis Frost Centre, which <laughs> I don't know why, but proper women's prison and and I met some incredible women out there and they generously over the many times that we went out to perform I got to know some of them and they shared their stories with me and um you know one was a love story you know between a a woman who you know I think had probably been quite unfairly treated by the justice system possibly because she was gay and had fallen in love with another woman when she when she came to prison and the hope of being able to be together and outside. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed like singing in the first, writing and singing in the first person as someone else. And obviously I didn't name names or make anything, you know, to be traceable back to anyone. But, yeah, that was a really great experience to write that song. And then No Other is another song that's actually written from the perspective of my grandfather who died the year before Um, and him being a, he was an orphan and just, you know, the history that he had with Melbourne, like just living in all these different um, parts of Melbourne, South Melbourne, West Melbourne, and, and you know, really poor. And, and I mean, he, he hitchhiked to, to Castlemaine at 13 to try and get work and then, you know, just like the, the most crazy stories that are hard to even even imagine. And I just 
again, putting myself in his shoes and also him, you know, singing a little bit to my grandmother from him, mm. um, kind of the, the, the idea that they've been together, you know, since they were both in their 20s and he died at 87 and her never having spent a night without him in her whole life and just what that must, you know, how strange and challenging that, that must be really interesting to put myself in their shoes and, and try and write from that perspective. In light of that and the fact that you've had a chance to give Iris a song that allows her some memories to be shared on top of the others that I'm sure she holds very dear, how do you hold on to memories, Mia? I don't think I actively try and do anything to hold on to memories. I, I mean... Like I'm not particularly someone who takes a lot of photos and like looks back through photos. I think the main way is through my connections and relationships with people and, you know, with my own family talking about the past. And it's, it, you know, the past gets more and more interesting the further away I get from it. You know, the further away I get from like when I can become an observer instead of the experiencer and, and you know, like me and my sister the other day were just, marveling about being teenagers in Torquay and our perspective on things and how we just the way we saw things and how we see them completely differently now and you know and and actually in in some ways like we when we have those conversations we're like redoing those those memories so that you know like I mean like a good example is like having some judgment about like you know we were we were always kind of the the less well-off kids and we didn't have the 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 clothes of the popular, you know, that the popular kids. So we didn't have the rip curl brand. We didn't have the brand clothes. We didn't have the money for that. You know, we used to like think that all those kids were stuck up and blah, blah, blah. And I have no idea. Like that just, you know, who those people were or what, what they're like, like was just a, a, a kind of reaction that a child has when they're missing out on something and remake those memories and go like, I don't have anything against those people. I don't know who they are. Like they could be, wonderful people and I just dismissed them back then because I was because I felt less than but I've actually changed some of my memories (laughs) based upon the facts that you were going through at the time obviously a reimagining of yeah exactly exactly realizing that what I thought of that person or group of people was much more because I felt less than than because they did anything to me or or to anyone else that could could indicate that they were um, snobby or whatever. And, 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 you know, and even just the idea of like really being careful now not to, to lump people together in, as, you know, a group, you know, but to take each person on their individual character and, and, in, and especially in how they, how they are to me rather than, you know, hearsay. How much did the performing in particularly the women's prisons inform that view as well? That was a great opportunity to meet people from a really different walk of life, uh, you know, who didn't, maybe didn't have the kinds of stable homes and and loving parents and all the advantages that I'd had, you know, but were still just doing their best and had tried to do their best and tried to make a life. And, you know, it really gave me some perspective and just, I think, an ability to at least attempt not to not to just judge people on face value and and to get to know people and and I think that's the the role of 
you know, an artist or artists in, in culture to sort of draw attention to and highlight and, and tell stories to open people up to a different way of looking at things, you know. Let's go to choose and how that fits into maybe the narrative that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, thank you. I just I just was posting about this the other day and really thinking about how, you know, we are so, you know, the, the most important fundamental uh, facets of our life are completely out of our control, you know, where we're born, who we're born to, whether our parents are rich or poor, you know, whether they're in love or divorcing or like all of those things that so – I think so influence a life are completely out of our control. And, you know, you, you get dealt a set of cards and, and it's not fair. Like it's really like life doesn't dole out fair sets of cards to, to people. Some, you know, some get all the cards and, and some don't. And, and even getting all the cards doesn't necessarily mean that things, you know, work out in the long run, but, this idea with choose is both accepting that fact and becoming becoming um, you know the agent in in one's life for, about the things that we can choose and and certainly how we react to those circumstances being you know the biggest thing we we can choose and and how we don't have to then you know be defined by those circumstances we we um, yeah, so just um, that was me, like, trying to explore in my 23-year-old way, like, oh, wow, like, there's all this stuff that is not in my control and then there's this this world of things that I do control, mainly my reactions and, and you know, and working towards things I want to happen. Um, but, again, no guarantees that, that what I want will actually arrive, but I, I can try. Part of the vinyl release and maybe a wider release, there is the reimagining of uh, a number of tunes on an EP. Talk to us about revisiting tunes. Yeah, this was like unexpectedly a real joy to come back to. I picked five songs from the LP and I think there's a few reasons for that. One of them is that I feel like I, you know, as much as I was trying to get it right back then, you know, my singing and, you know, my guitar playing and all the elements of that making that record, it was like I was forcing, trying to force something to happen. And I think in a way it comes out in, in my singing on that record. And it was so fun to be able to, now that I've like, I feel more like I've grown into myself and I know who, who I am more and I, my, my vo- voice feels so much more natural and authentic to get to sing those songs again with what I wished I'd been able to do back then. So that was one element. And then with Choose, yeah, getting to uh, – it was just it was a really fun experiment. I just thought, why don't I try playing it on the piano? You know, that guitar riff is so specific that I thought if I was going to do it on guitar, it would be really hard to do anything other than the exact same thing. It would just feel like weird. Why is, Where's that riff? Mm. So to just – change it completely so that you weren't like a listener wasn't like, well, hopefully not going like, where's that bit that I'm used to, but just to hear a whole new thing on piano. And I, I felt like the piano just totally worked with the sentiment of the song. And it's actually become more like to me, more, um, 
poignant or something more um yeah there's there's a there's a sentiment there that feels like it carries across with the piano perhaps even even better for me you may know angie mcmahon's work salt the uh, the yes. piano version of that very album you know i put that record on and i just went i kind of get this bit more for me personally than i did yep. the original recordings and that's no discredit to her original album but there was a different connection for me yeah yeah the piano's got a it's got a voice like quality to it that you know a guitar just obviously doesn't doesn't have and there's something to be said for that in in the right moments if there's a piano handy on stage you're going to gravitate to that live or is that a very private thing for you gosh i hadn't you know the the problem of with piano and and perhaps why i love playing electric guitar is like piano is so tricky to get to sound great in a live setting if you're also playing with drums and bass and mm-hmm. i mean you know you can get out a keyboard but i just don't feel like that that just doesn't it's like the same ask any jazz musician i was thinking shark puppy for example on piano and the stress of that the piano is just waiting for you and it decides if it's going to be in tune when you sit down exactly in tune and, and like, add an outdoor concert environment to that oh, so hot weather in australia good luck oh my gosh i i don't envy anyone whose you know main instrument is piano and that's what they they do everywhere you know electric guitars like I get to control the sound wherever I go. It's my amp. It's my guitar. You know, even if the PA sucks, I still have got my guitar sound. It's been a joy. The few times I've gotten to play, like, actual upright or even grand piano on stage, it's been, like, a thrill. Um, But I think it's really for, like, the solo concert, you know. I'm planning on for this tour to be with the band. But, you know, you've, you've put the idea in my head, John. You know, I might just... Have a little think about that. What is planned for the live performance, you say, with a band? I'm lucky enough to be playing with a couple of stellar musicians. Dave Williams on drums, who's of Augie March fame, and then Richard Bradbeer on bass, who's played with a lot of greats. And it's going to be trio, which is how I used to play back then, this album and the preceding and latter album. They're going to be singing backups. You know, we're going to be covering like a lot of what's on the record and we're going to play the whole record, or maybe except for the instrumental, but just, you know, the, the 10 songs that make up the main part of the, the album will be playing everything. And I haven't played some of those songs since then. So it's going to be, I haven't yet got practicing or rehearsing yet. So <laughs> it's a little like, oh, how's this going to go? But I'm, I'm excited. I, I know it'll all come back to me. And I think... I'll finally be playing some songs that some people have wanted to hear for a while. We're currently in conversation with Mia Dyson, the 15th anniversary release, including on white vinyl of the album Parking Lots and an up-and-coming tour for said record. Let's return to that conversation with Mia Dyson. You've been doing a bit of a trio thing for a little while now in a particular outfit we mentioned in the introduction. Uh, yes. So do you have a bit of a warming feeling about the trio? Like is that your comfort zone, being in a trio? Absolutely. Yes. Trio, I started out that way, like 17, drums and bass and guitar. There's something really 
pure about that and and as a guitarist there's so much space and and I think that's how I developed my style which is quite rhythmic and solo-y at the same time as opposed to you know being either a rhythm player or a soloist which I really love and any more than that and it starts to get complex and complicated in a live setting and and unless you've got like the whole sort of sound team as well it can just be really great to keep it simple like that and play. And you can do so much like dynamically with, with a trio. So I'm a big fan. Just finally on the live performances, and this is a question directly related to Blues Fest in April of 2021. I'm daydreaming, I know, possibly for parking lots, why not? Any chance of getting Tex Perkins to do that, the duet? I don't see why not. Now, again, John, you're giving me ideas. You're uh, you're putting things in my head. I love his voice. I've even uh, sung with text before, so, I, 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 you know, he might be willing. In the show notes, we'll put your performance on Rockwiz with text so people can check out your shredding with him live with Julia Zemiro and the rest of the crew, obviously. Love that gang. I want to know about Christmas Island because 15 years on, this song, sadly, is just as relevant as it was then. What's your feelings on Christmas Island 15 years on? The song, the situation, the heart. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, I, in a funny way, like I didn't write it as a political song and I know that it certainly could be taken that way. It, I really, I, I read David Marr's book. Um, about, you know, refugees coming to Australia by boat, you know, some of the tragedies. And I just, I just was, it, it just brought me to a place, again, putting my feet in someone else's shoes and imagining what it would be like, like how, how desperate you would have to be to find a better life, to get on a, on a rickety boat with people who are ripping you off and, bribes going here and there and the stress and fear and, and risk that you're taking to get to a better life. It was profound. You know, it's one thing to be sort of a young young man, but to be a woman who's with a child, and that's what the song's about, just how scary and how fraught, that just broke my heart and and I wanted to write from that perspective and that was my attempt and I don't even know enough about the situation now as it stands politically to, to comment too deeply on that, but it, it certainly feels like we haven't made a lot of progress. What can happen with a 15th anniversary is whatever the spotlight is, it's a way of going back to 2005 and saying, as you did then, what was going on? Let's talk about the heart. How's your heart going? <laughs> nice segue, nice segue. <laughs> you know, it's doing really well now. It wasn't doing well for a, about a minute mm-hmm. when it stopped. Props to Carl. Carl is the hero of this story. Um, but I guess also within that mix is your will to not want to die. Did your body say, nah, time's up? Yep. I mean, briefly, yes. It, well, I didn't know that I have a condition that has since been diagnosed where my heart 
can stop um, <laughs> and just basically it, it, it's an arrhythmia. It's called long QT syndrome and it can be my particular type, type 2, can be brought on by sudden loud noises and we had an earthquake in LA in uh, September of 2020 and I woke up and it was the biggest earthquake I'd ever felt and it was you know rocking the house. Mm-hmm. I went unconscious and Carl, my husband, I'd stopped breathing. I didn't, you know, obviously wasn't aware of all this, but I'd stopped breathing and my heart had stopped. He started CPR, got me breathing again, called 911, got me to the hospital. And, you know, and I had this defibrillator implanted in my chest, pretty much the only, other, other than just doing nothing and risking sudden death by arrhythmia at any time, it's kind of the only treatment. So I got this, uh, defibrillator implanted and it will shock me to life if my heart stops again but it was a profound experience because I mean it was incredibly scary for Carl much more than for me because I was I was unconscious but it was it was a very strange experience being somewhat you know somewhere between life and death and hearing his voice in the very far distance and being in this completely dark but completely neutral nothingness space and just hearing him and just starting to notice like, oh, he's like, he sounds really serious and, but calm and, and not understanding what was going on and then slowly coming back into my body. Like I was gone and then and suddenly like I can start to feel my limbs. Then I start to actually feel awful because, you know, whatever had just happened to my body the consequences of I could feel like my I was feeling really heavy and I couldn't talk and I couldn't move and I was very confused and so as I got closer to consciousness it got scarier and scarier which is kind of the reverse of what you would think would happen in a way being in that gone place was not scary at all so um yeah and, and Carl was just saying over and over as I was coming back he was like thank you for coming back to me Thank you for coming back to me. And we just, it, you know, it just, for both of us, it was a profoundly um, intimate experience. And we came out the other side just deeply, deeply grateful to have each other and to be alive and to have a chance at more life. Interesting as we're saying that loud noises, luckily you don't play the electric guitar at music festivals at full volume. <laughs> Sudden loud noises. So I just shouldn't like, you know, I've got to just know it's coming, then I'm fine. What is Carl plays violin? He does. He does play violin. He, I mean, he plays a little bit of guitar and piano, but he's learning the violin at the moment. So no loud violin noises no, or else he's cancelled everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, look, now I've got this parachute cord that I can pull I, I don't even have to operate it myself. It's just self-operate. It operates itself. So, you know, go ahead, mate. Go ahead, earthquakes and loud noises. I'll be all right. What song off parking lots have we not spoken about that you'd like to, as we wrap up, have a yarn about? Gosh, let me think. I really love Rivers Wide. I think, you know, that's a song that I wrote really to to celebrate and Pay, pay gratitude to my mother 
not pay gratitude, but, you know, to celebrate and honor her. And I think, cause I think, you know, there was some middle years where I felt a little bit cringy about that song, but now I feel really just like right on, you know, like I, I think mothers don't get much, I don't think they get as, as much kudos as they, as they should. And so I find that quite sweet now and, and really glad that I wrote that song. Does that fall on the A side or the start of the B side? Because it's track number six, it could go on either side. Start of the B side. Ooh, strong start yeah. to the B side. Yeah, exactly. Love that one. Matt Walker played and co-produced that song, which I love his guitar playing on that. And it's just a really beautifully produced uh, track too, I think. Just quickly before we round out, I want to give a shout out to Anita Coates, who's taken the photograph. I believe they're also a singer-songwriter. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad Anita gets a shout out. She's someone I've met over here. She's a incredible artist in general, a visual artist, photographer, and of course, incredible singer and songwriter and, uh, and now a really dear friend of mine. And so it's, it's really, I love getting to work with other artists, um, you know, in, in, in capacities built around my career, like photography and videography and all the other aspects of making a career that aren't just the music so yeah it's really wonderful to get to work with her the vinyl has been remastered by william bowden what were the instructions you gave william about this remaster do your best (laughs) i really didn't have any any special instructions i still find mastering mysterious which drives me crazy i'm still like do we have to what is this? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not that. I'm not that clueless on it. But um, what is this wizardry? It, what Nob, is this wizardry? Knobs and faders, especially around digital stuff, because it seems like the only goal of mastering is just to make everything loud to compete with everything else that's loud, and it's like everything has to be louder than everything else. But the beauty of mastering for vinyl is it's not about that. I mean, there's a warmth to it that is kind of much more of the approach rather than just loudness. You know, it sounded great when it came back. I was happy with it. So, yeah. Weird left of centre question, but (laughs) when did you last speak to Pink? It's been a couple years now. We met. Five years ago you met, January 2015. Yep. Wow. Yeah, we met in a, a little wine venue up in wine country, northeast of LA. She lives in that area and that was somewhere that she kind of hangs out at and brought a group of girlfriends uh, to see. Well, I think she was just showing up because she she goes to this venue because she likes to see live music and she didn't know who I was or anything, but she bought everything that I had, (laughs) which was great. (laughs) Took it all home, tweeted about me and we stayed in touch a little bit. I went and did some songwriting with her in Venice. I think that might have been the last time I saw her few years ago now, but yeah. Mia Dyson, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mia Dyson, Parking Lot's 15th year anniversary release out now. For their music and latest tour details, miadyson.com. Mentioned Anita Coates in our chat promo photographer for Mia. I've got the record right here and the actual album cover photography is by Joseph Fell, F-E-I-L. 
I also note, as I look at the actual physical vinyl on the back, and sometimes you only learn these things by looking at album covers, the backing vocals are done by a couple of different people. As we mentioned, Renee Gaya was in the mix, but Kylie Aldis was another one of the backing vocalists on Parking Lots back in 2005. Back in 2020, the brand new album, full length from Kylie Oldest herself, is called This Is What Happiness Looks Like, out on Soul Bank Music. Thanks very much to our feature guest this time, Mia Dyson. Next time, we'll catch up with an Adelaide outfit, a member thereof, of Open Fire, an up-and-coming group. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Mm-hmm.